Life is Tremendous, Leadership is for You by Charles E. Jones. Welcome to today's podcast. We'll be reading a chapter from this famous book by Charles Tremendous Jones. This book is about 50 years old. I picked it up years ago when I was going through a lot of heartache. This was published in 1968 by himself, Charles E. Jones. Life is Tremendous. It really is. You can be happy, involved, relevant, productive, healthy, and secure in the midst of high-pressure, commercialized, automated, pill-prone society. It's not easy nor automatic, but it is possible the development of certain personal qualities which make up the traits of leadership. And you can be a leader because leaders are made, not born. Are you ready? Are you ready for leadership? Woohoo! Let's do it. Let's go. It was made to go, man. Guarantee. Okay, chapter 8 is, excuse me, page 8, guarantee. I guarantee it. Okay. The reading of these pages will be one of the most profitable things you have ever done or listening. How can I make such a guarantee? In the past 12 months, I shared these ideas with companies that together have exceeded 20 more billion dollars in sales. Many of these leading salesmen and executives have returned with their families to sit through the same three-hour lecture several times in a 12-month period. Our mail from businessmen, housewives, and clergymen and college students reports the revolution effects of these ideas. If you are to profit as countless thousands have, don't remember what I say here. That's right. You must not remember what I say. You heard me right. You wonder, aren't you going to say anything worth remembering? Yes, I am. But the value of this book won't be in your remembering what I say, but in rather in your in remembering what you think as a result of what I say. My objective is to prove that what you think as a result of what I say is far more important than you're remembering what I say. Make sense? Let me say that again. Our objective in this reading is to, to prove that what you think as a result of what I say is far more important than you're remembering what I say. Got it? I always start a lecture lecture by asking everyone to refrain from writing down what I say because I believe that what you hear doesn't do you a great deal of good. If it did, we all be a lot better than we are. We sure have already plenty of instructions, tips, rules, and suggestions, haven't we? I am stretching the point, but bear with me. Coming out of a meeting one day, a man said to me, Mr. Jones, I'll bet you that 10% of these people can't remember 10% of what you said 10 minutes after you said it. Huh, he was right. And for that reason, I have geared my talking and writing to getting you to remember what you think and how you think. And more than that, to get you to think what you already know. My number one objective is to stir up your thought process and help you frame your best thoughts with words so you can harness and use them. Concentrate on what you think, 
from here on, and I guarantee a tremendously profitable adventure through practicing the laws of leadership. Remember Alexis de Tocqueville that said, we succeed in enterprises which demands the positive qualities we possess, but we excel in those which can also make use of our defects. Got it? We thank God for our defects. And we can profit from them. Okay, here we go. Chapter one. Leadership is learning to live. Leadership is an obligation and a privilege of every person, young and old, because it is based simply on what we do. Everyone is responsible for something that he alone must do. If we enjoy this privilege and discharge our obligation, we grow. If we ignore our opportunity, we join the shrinking violets of humanity. The most tremendous experience of life is the learning process. The saddest time is when a person thinks that he has learned enough. Did you ever hear these famous last words? This is one thing I've learned. Know what he's learned? Nothing. I remember saying that, and soon afterwards, I would wind up learning all over again what I thought I had just learned. Now, I almost learned one thing, and that is that the process of learning to live is tremendous. Tremendous, I tell you. We never stop growing until we stop learning. And people who are learning the simple truth will grow old but never get old. Once a boy was rowing an old-timer across a wide river. The old-timer picked a floating leaf from the water, studied it for a minute, and then asked the boy if he knew anything about biology. No, I don't, the boy said. The old-timer said, son, you have missed 25% of your life. As they rowed, the old-timer took a rock from the bottom of the boat, returned it in his hand, studying it, it's coloration, and that's the boy. Son, do you know anything about geology? The boy sheepishly replied, No, sir, I don't. The old timer said, Son, you missed 25% of your life. Twilight was approaching, and the old timer gazed rapidly at the North Star that had begun to twinkle. After a while, he asked the boy, Son, do you know anything about astronomy? The boy head, bow and brow furled, admitted, No, sir, I don't, sir. The old-timer scolded, Son, you missed another 25% of your life. Just then, the boy noticed the huge dam upstream beginning to crumble and torrent of water pouring through the break. Quickly, he turned to the old-timer and shouted, Sir, do you have 25% of swimming ability on you? The old-timer replied, No, not even that. To which the boy shouted back, You just lost 100% of your life. You need not learn the methods and techniques of living, but you must be a real student of learning to live if you are to lead dynamically because leadership is nothing more than really living. 
This book is really about you, not primarily about the author. I may intrigue here and there to show you a bad example to avoid, but the book will talk about you. It relates you to laws of living, which are called the laws of leadership. Anyone who is leading others in life is not really living, whether you realize it or not. Other people lead you in every area of your life for good or ill. And with every passing moment, your own leadership responsibilities are increasing. The person who recognizes this will never be bored. But the person who forgets or ignores it will be dead long before his funeral. My son Jared, Jared once remarked that he was interested in life after death, but even more the life after birth. We all should be interested in that. No one lives unto himself. There is an island and a you land. The island is a lonely place. The countless thousands are shipwrecked on its shores after setting their sails away from you land. Perhaps they merely drifted into island, but the result is the same. Loneliness and slow death for people who never experienced the thrill of learning to live. First steps. Learning to say something positive to everybody all the time. Learning to live begins with developing positive attitudes and your inner vision. First, say, I want to be learning to say something positive to everyone at all times. Say that to yourself in the mirror. You say, that's not possible. I didn't say you had to do it. I said, be learning to do it. You'll never arrive, but you can be on the grow. Perhaps as much as 99% of our conversation is negative. Some people can't wait for their mouth to open and expose another negative nugget for all to admire. I'm not talking about tongue-in-cheek flattery or snide gilding of the lily. I don't know what, but downright pessimism. I'm convinced that there is nothing that will be brightening the atmosphere of a business, church, or home like an enthusiastic person who offers a few positive words to others. I believe it is possible to take something positive to everybody about everything all the time if we want to. Did you hear about the two fellows in jail? Tom said to Joe. Where are you going? The electric chair? Joe replied, more power to you, Tom Chirp. That's a little extreme, but Tom's heart was in the right place. Consider the different effects of the statement. This rain ruins everything. And look at that beautiful rainbow. If you'll cultivate the habit of saying something positive to everybody, you won't have to say something to everyone. Your image will promote a positive atmosphere where you go, wherever you go. But if you aren't working on this, you are drifting near the rock of the island. Once a cranky grandpa lay down to take a nap to have a little fun, his grandson put some Limburg 
cheese on his mustache. It stinks. Grandpa awoke with a snort and a charge out of his bedroom saying, this room stinks. And through the house he went. He finally was forced outside only to find out that the whole world stinks. This dismal experience can't happen to the person who is learning to say a positive word to everyone. I used to drive semi for Wonder Bread from San Diego to Yuma, Arizona. And I would drop off bread here and there as I was, I, was, I think I was Mesa. I was up and um, I dropped some bread and I got off the truck and it's the whole town stunk. So I can't wait to get out of this town. And then I drove away to the next town and the, the town still stunk. When I got back, I talked to an older truck driver. I was about 23 and I, I told him, I said, hey, this that town of Mesa, boy, it sure stinks. And then he says, did you run, o did you run over anything? And I said, well, I thought I saw a white piece of paper go through my right in front of me with the wind. I go, no, it probably was a skunk. Your truck smells. You ran over a skunk. <laughs> okay, second, be learning to see something positive in everything that happens. Did you ever notice how quickly our minds jump to negative conclusions about things we see and hear? For example, suppose someone called you to the phone and announced, it's your boss. Is your first thought tremendous? He wants to give me a raise? No, most of us would react. No, what did I do or who told him? I'm in trouble now. I believe, believe that one of the most important habits for us to cultivate is to find something positive in everything that happens. You may think it's foolish to look for something that isn't there. You're right on that score, but I am urging you to cultivate being a positive realist and see the positive thing that is already there. Did you hear about the two positive thinkers in the army guardhouse? One said to the other, how long are you in for? 30 days. What did you do? I was AWOL. What are you in for? Three days. What did you do? I murdered the general. How come I got 30 days for being AWOL and you got only three days for murdering the general? They're hanging me on Wednesday. You see, if a man really wants to find something positive in any situation, he can. The problem with most of us is we don't want to. The best thing in life don't come easy. They come free, not easy. Developing this attitude is worth all your effort. Third, you must be learning to see it big and keep it simple. We call it SIBKISS in our office. S-I-B-K-I-S. I never promoted a universal success formula because I've been learning none of them will work for you unless you work for them. My formula won't necessarily work for you, but when you make it yours, it may. Years ago, our office adopted the SIP Kiss formula and put it on every bulletin, burned it into every heart, and made it a way of life. SIP Kiss stands for see it big. Keep it simple. 
A fellow says, what's so important about that? I'll tell you why it's important to me. It's the opposite of my nature. My nature is to see something small and then complicated. So I can't do anything about it. I need to constantly remind myself that although I can, can get help from many resources, I am on my own in this area. No one can see it big and keep it simple for me. It's tremendous to be learning that no matter how big you see things or how simple you keep them, you'll never reach the ultimate. No man has ever seen things as big as they could have been since or kept them as simple as they might be. Sometimes we do well in one area at the expense of the other, like the little boy on the corner with his flop-eared pup. A salesman passed by the corner each day, and after a week he began to pity the boy who was striving to sell his pup. The salesman knew the boy didn't see it big. He stopped and said, Son, do you really want to sell this dog? The boy replied, moving his head up and down. I certainly do, sir. Well, you're never going to sell him until you learn to see it big. What I mean is this. Take this dog home, clean him up, doll him up, raise your price, make people think they're getting something big, and you'll sell him. That noon, the salesman came by, and there was the boy with a puppy that was groomed, perfumed, and alongside of him, a giant sign saying, Tremendous puppy for sale, $5,000. The salesman gulped and realized he had forgotten to tell the boy about keeping it simple. That evening, he stopped by to tell the boy the other half of the formula, only to discover that the boy was gone, the puppy was gone, and the sign lay there with soul written across it in big letters. Huh. The salesman couldn't believe it. This kid couldn't have sold a dog for $5,000. His curiosity got the best of him, and he rang, ran to the boy's house and rang the doorbell. The boy came to the door, and the salesman blurted, Son! You didn't really sell that dog for $5,000, did you? The boy replied, Yes, sir, I sure did. And I want to thank you for all your help and ideas. The salesman said, How in the world did you do it? The boy replied, Oh, it was easy. I just took two 2500 cats in exchange. <laughs> two $2,500 cats in exchange. Watch out that you don't get in trouble by seeing it big without keeping it simple or perhaps keeping it simple without seeing it big. But if you'll be learning to see it a little bigger and keep it a little simpler, you're in for some tremendous experiences. Again, if you'll learn to see it a little bigger and keep it a little simpler, you're in for some tremendous experiences. Remember, there is not a school or person in the world that can teach you this. It has to come from your own heart, and you're learning the process right now in what you're doing. You're disciplining yourself to see it a little bigger and keep it a little simpler.
you have a foundation on which to build a steady expanding life. This doesn't mean that everything is going to get easier, just the opposite. We know that when a person begins to grow, the obstacles get bigger and better. But there's excitement and progress and struggle. And life gets easier only when you're coasting downhill. Why? Not how. The question should be why, not how. Did you ever notice the number of people who spend their time learning how to do it? And after they learn, they accomplish very little before they're looking for a new how to do it. As soon as they master that, someone announces another how to do it. Although technical competence in any field is a necessity, the key to using know-how is know why. The great organization The great organizations of the country and the great lives in history have been built on the answers to why. You can teach someone how to do a task, but that doesn't assure he's doing it. But let him discover why and he'll learn how in spite of all obstacles. The key is not how to live, but why you are living. This stimulus will keep you growing. Why are you reading this book? Why are you listening to this book? I trust it is with a positive expectation to find answers for living, learning, and leading. The answers will come from your own brain computer as I whirl some of the why knobs. Why do some people merely exist rather than live the tremendous life? I can't speak for all who are enduring their living death, but I think many people have simply never been sold on the tremendous life. At the beginning, I mentioned that everybody has been led for better or worse in everything he does in all his life. Unless a person in any walk of life becomes a salesman of his beliefs and actions, he will never learn about much about living, because living is involvement with reality. And the deepest reality is people. We are leading others all the time, unconsciously or deliberately, through our actions or their recognition. In one direction or another, we are selling our values whenever we're with other people. Child, adult, customer, salesman. Our problem is that we don't often realize what we are doing or why. All persons with right motives want to do more than exist. They want to contribute, to have a sense of importance, to be accepted by others. These goals and many others are best accomplished through the tremendous learning to live process. Unknowns, author said, Always dream and shoot higher than you know you can reach. Don't bother just to be better than your contemporaries and predecessors. Try to be better than yourself.
This is the end of chapter one. Chapter two, seven laws of leadership. God has built certain laws into his universe, and these laws are no respecter of person. Too often wrongly motivated people harness the right laws for the wrong purposes, while rightly motivated people assume that sincerity and diligence are sufficient for success. The latter doesn't get the right result for the right purpose because they aren't harnessing the right laws. So I want to discuss seven laws that are absolutes. Following them will assure you a tremendous adventure in life. Either you use them and find them working for you, or you will ignore them and find them working against you. The first law of leadership. Learning to get excited about your work. This is a law that can not fail. It's a law that stands up now. This is a lot different than saying the first law of leadership is work. Once in a while, you'll hear a guy saying, show me a man who will work and I will show you a success. And I say, you show me a man who will say that and I will show you an idiot. <laughs> work in itself will not do it. I know I almost worked myself out of existence a dozen of times. Why do many why do many people work and work and work and never have anything to show for it? And yet some people don't seem to work and they have great results. The first law of leadership is not work as we usually think of it, though it, it takes work, but learning to get excited about your work. But a guy says, Jones, don't you know it's easy to be excited about something glamorous like you're doing or what an executive does? If you had this lousy job of mine, you wouldn't talk like that. I'll let you in on a secret. Work, wherever you find it, implies only one kind of thing. Detail, monotony, preparation, striving, weariness. That's what we all have to overcome, no matter what our work is. Sure, it's easy to get excited about something I'm not doing, but I have... But if I have to do it and have to learn and grow and plan and persevere, then work isn't much fun. But the first law the first law of leadership is learning to get excited about my work, not someone else's, not the work I'm going to do someday. The first law of leadership tells me to get excited about the m miserable job I have right now and you know if I can get excited about it while it's miserable it's going to be tremendous if it ever gets pleasant a young man came into my office after graduating number two in his class uh, at an Ivy League school he said mr. Jones I heard about you I've been interviewing by his this company and that company and now none of them hit me I thought you could help me find what I would like to do. Oh, one of those poor fellows, I thought. I'll give him a little shock treatment, I replied. 
You like me to help you find what you like to do? How can I help you find what you like to do when I haven't been able to find what I like to do? He said, don't you like what you're doing? I bellowed. I hate it. They don't pay very much to do the things I like to do. Do you know what I like to do? I like to relax. I like to talk about work. I like vacations, conventions, commissions, salaries, increased long lunches. What do I get? Headaches, heartbreaks, turndowns. But you know what I've been learning. But you know what I have been learning? If I don't get excited about what I don't like to do, I don't get much that I do like to be excited about. I don't get much of that. I've been learning that life is not doing what you like to do. Real life is doing what you ought to do. I've been learning that people who do what they like to do eventually discover that what they thought they like to do, they don't like to do. But people who are learning to do what they don't like to do, but ought to do, eventually discover that what they thought they didn't like to do, they do like to do. In the 60s, I earned 10000 a year when I was 25 years old, doing things I didn't like to do. They paid me 25000 a year when I was 30 to do things I didn't like. When I was 35, they paid me 50000 a year to do the things I didn't like to do. The, the salary didn't make those jobs worthwhile, but my efforts and the results were important and worthwhile. Life isn't mainly a matter of doing what you like to do. It's doing what you ought to do and need to do. I'm glad I was born in a time to get in on the old thing called the Depression. There was one thing that everyone was learning in those days without taking any course in psychology. The most exciting thing in the world was to be able to work, to have a job. Any kind of a job was a privilege. Today, everybody's looking for the right kind of jobs. Sometimes a guy says, I'm trying to find a job that fits me. I say, I hope you get something better than that. We need to be learning what that God never made the job that could make a man. But any man who can get excited about his work can make a job. If you watch a guy who's moving up, you'll see one who knows that he deserves nothing and owes everything. But when he gets to the place that he decides he owes nothing and deserves everything, he will be on his way down before he knows what happened. You watch for it and see if it's true. If it is true. Why is enthusiasm for work so important to success? Let me tell you about a guy who dreamed he inherited a million dollars. He dreamed he went to take a shower that morning and the shower wouldn't work. He started to shave and the shaver wouldn't shave. He went to get some coffee and the coffee wouldn't perk and the toaster wouldn't toast. He went out to get the newspaper, but the newspaper wasn't there. He went to catch the bus and the bus didn't come. He waited 45 minutes and finally a guy came puffing down the street. He said, what's going on here? He asked and the guy gasped, haven't you heard? Everybody's inherited a million dollars. Nobody's working anymore. Just then, the man woke up, and he went and had a tremendous shower and a tremendous shave and a tremendous cup of coffee and a tremendous piece of toast, 
He read a tremendous newspaper and caught a tremendous bus to a tremendous job. What a difference it makes when we are learning to get excited about the work we have today. A lot of people think enthusiasm or a cheerful spirit is something that falls on you. I want to tell you this with all my heart. The most challenging thing you'll ever face in your life is learning every day to be excited about what you're doing. Sometimes a person says, I'm preparing for my next job. You have better get excited about the one you've got now, or there may not be a next one. Are you excited about what you're doing? This takes work. The work in life is learning to be excited about work. Once a person begins to learn a little about it, he is on his way. There is nothing that can make you more excited about your work than a sense of importance and urgency. I believe that the fires of inspiration and greatness in our hearts can be kept burning only by the developing this sense of urgency and importance in our work. Not the work I'm going to do, not the work I wish I could do, but the work I am doing now. Again, I believe that these fires of inspiration and greatness in our hearts can be kept burning only by developing this sense of urgency and importance in our present work. A sense of urgency in your work informs you that yesterday is gone forever and tomorrow may never come, but today is in your hands. I'll let you know the shirking that shirking today's work will add to tomorrow's burden. Shrinking. It helps you accomplish the task that today sets before you. Walter Bishhot said, business is really more agreeable than pleasure. It interests the whole mind, the aggregate nature of man more continuously and more deeply, but it does not look as if it did. Hmm. In other words, deep work is intriguing. Thank God for the sense of urgency now that can change a dull, menial job into a sparkling career. A sense of urgency is not the complete solution, but it is a tremendous step in the right direction. If you don't have a sense of urgency about your work, ask God to give it to you. Whatever your work is, believe that he will and then act accordingly. Rather than wandering through your life looking for something that never existed, get excited about your work now and begin to live. Seven Laws of Leadership Chapter 2, the second law of leadership is use or lose. God gives everyone certain attributes, characteristics, talents, and then he says, if you use what you have, I'll increase it. But if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Use it or lose it. It's a law. One night when I came out of a seminar, a fellow confronted me and said, Charlie, do you think it's possible for a person to be excited about his work, be thrilled and successful and Three years later, be sick and sorry he ever heard of the whole lousy mess. Uh-oh, another person who didn't know the law of use or lose. 
You see, one day he was enjoying and using the talent he had. As a result, he was on the grow and happy. Then he began to coast, not using what he had, and he was losing it. One morning, he woke up to discover he had failed. The people who lose what they had usually blame it on someone else. Consider this. No one is a failure until he blames somebody else. Again, no one is a failure until he blames somebody else. As long as you accept the blame for failure, you won't be a failure because you're in a position to change the situation. Did you hear about that sophisticated burglars that are operating around the world? One evening, they robbed a shoe store. They carefully took all the shoes out of the boxes and neatly replaced the empty boxes on the shelves. Finally, they finished and left the store just as they had found it, except there were no shoes in the boxes. The next morning, the manager arrived. He usually cheerful shopping and held a quick sales meeting with the employees. Then the first customer appeared, and he sent out his star salesman. Go get her, Bill. Bill rushed over. Good morning, ma'am, he said. Put your little footsie right up here. My, what a nice foot. We got a number from Paris for you that'll knock your eye out. This is, excuse me, ma'am, something's wrong here. Ma'am, that was the wrong shoe. I want to show you a shoe that's designed for a heavenly foot like, oops, that's not it either. I was saving a pair for my wife that will really get you. Look at this, ma'am. Uh-oh. Wait a minute, ma'am. I'll be right back. Boss. Boss, we got troubles. What do you mean, troubles? Boss, we don't have any shoes. What do you mean we don't have any shoes? Look at all those boxes. Boss, all those boxes are empty. Yes, sir. That store had been robbed, and the poor owner hadn't even known it. And so it is with millions of people who have been robbed because they didn't practice the law of use it or lose it. Let's take a little inventory of our character stock. A lot of people are not learning the law of use or lose. This law says that if you're not using what you have, you're losing it. If you're using what you have, you're getting more of it. Some guys say, how come I'm twice as smart as he is and he's making twice as much as I am? I'll tell you what. He is learning to use what he has and get more of it. Let's check some of those boxes on your shelf. How's your total commitment? Have you checked it lately? If you have some and you've been using it, you're getting more. If you have some and are not using it, you're losing it. I tell young men. If you, you're ever asked to take on a sideline something more than what you put on your hand to, demand a fortune for it. Because if you give up the small amount of total commitment you have, you're bankrupt. A sideline is a slide line. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. If you use your total commitment, you'll get more. And more total commitment will get things you really want. All right, let's check your sincerity. You say, oh boy, I'm glad you touch on that because that's my strength. I don't mean the kind of sincerity you turn on to get your own way. We all know how to get sincere and sincere. I'm talking about honest to God, genuine sincerity. I'm talking about the kind that grows if you have some and use it, but disappears. 
if you have some and don't use it. Last year, I spoke at a national convention of a company in Hollywood Beach and then went to see my dad in Pompono Beach. I had just enough time to drive up, tell him I love him, and give him a little hug and then rush away. There wasn't time for lunch, and I was starving when I saw I had to get gas. I thought, I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll get gas and run over to the grocery store to get an ice cream sandwich. I pulled into the gas station and stopped behind another car. As I jumped out, credit card in hand, a fellow came meandering over to my car. I hurriedly said, here, take this car and fill my tank. I'll be back in a minute. He replied, what do you want to do? Confuse me? My hunger pangs leap out and snap. Take this card and fill this tank or I'll get my gas somewhere else. I went across the road to get my ice cream sandwich. About halfway across the road, I was hit by a thundering thought. I had just lost a little of my sincerity, and I don't have enough to afford losing any. I couldn't hardly wait to get back across the street and tell this fellow that I was sorry. When I got back, I said, partner, I was rude to you a minute ago, and I want to apologize. I'm sorry. You know what he said? That's all right. Everybody's rude to me. Hmm. Yes, we live in a world where many people thrive on being rude to each other. We know how to act sincere, but we don't know how much about being sincere, do we? One of the greatest things in the world is to be learning to be a plain, common, horse-sense, sincere human being. If more of us could be learning that a little better, maybe our kids will be imitating us rather than devastating us. It's so easy to spot a con man. I can tell you one a mile away. Takes one to know one, you know. I discovered that some of the things I resent about others are a reflection of my own faults, and I've been more tolerant since then. One of the greatest things in the world is for a person who has some sincerity to be using it all the time. With the neighbors, the family, elevator, operators, waitresses, all the time. If you're not using that little bit of sincerity you have, you're losing it. You can't counterfeit or manufacture real sincerity. And what a thrilling thing it is to meet somebody who's real and plain and genuinely sincere. It's just tremendous. Let's check the loyalty box. A guy says, oh, I'm good on that too. Yeah, I know what you mean. A lot of people think loyalty is something you give because of what someone gave you. That's not loyalty. Loyalty is something you give regardless of what you get back. And in giving loyalty, you're getting more loyalty. And out of loyalty flows other great qualities. Some say it'll cost you a lot to be loyal to a family or a company, but consider what it will cost you if you don't use your loyalty. How would you like to belong to something where nobody would lay down their lives for what they believe? You can't change the world, but you can change yourself by using what you have and getting a little more of it. I don't know any way to get loyalty except by using and expanding it. How's your discipline? There's hardly a thing I hate more than discipline. I always hated it. I remember the disciplinary dad of mine. Almost every morning he says, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I say, 
Dad, if it hurts you so much, how come you're always doing it? I hated discipline. But later in life, I learned, excuse me, I began learning that one of the greatest attributes a fellow can cultivate and multiply is this thing called discipline. Discipline is a quality. <clears throat> you start with a little bit of it. You submit yourself to authority and a job and a goal, and you learn a bit more about discipline. The person who is not learning about discipline may, by subjecting himself to authority can try all the self-discipline he wants, but he'll never be successful. He has no discipline to apply discipline. Many people fail because they refuse to exercise this essential quality. Even in discouragement and defeat, discipline will spur you to keep constructively busy while you leave behind doubt, worry, and self-pity. Some of us have the spirit, I'll do anything except, don't ever say that. If you do, that's the very thing you'll have to do to begin to learn this quality that you need as much as any other thing. Discipline. I hope you haven't let the sophisticated burglar clean out all your stock and traits when you weren't watching. Remember, he's working on you and me all the time. There's simply no other way to get more of what you need than by using what you have. Okay, the third law of leadership, production to perfection. Once in a while, I meet a man who says, you know, I don't believe I'm going off half-cocked. When I do something, it's got to be perfect. I don't know if you heard about Sam's clothing store, but Sam was quite a guy. He knew about the law of production to perfection. One day, John came in to see Sam. He says, Sam, I want to buy a suit. Sam says, shh. He said, what do you mean, shh? <laughs> we don't sell suits here, John said. What are all these things? Sam said, well, um, when you come in here to buy a suit, it's not here. Walk over this way. It's not as if we could sell you one off the rack. When you come in here to buy a suit, it's a project. We make it an affair. We got to know the real you. We got to know your attitude and your aptitude, your likes and dislikes. And when you get to know the real you, we pick the right wool that fits you. We even go to England to pick up the right sheep that fits you. The silk lining, we go to Japan and get it right silk. We even pick up the right worm. And the buttons, we go to Alaska to pick the elk that fits you. John interrupts, wait a minute, Sam. I got to have a suit today. Sam spurs, you'll have it. Now, I believe in doing things right. In fact, one of my frequent prayers, the cry of my heart is, oh, God, let me do one thing right before I die. But I add, in the meantime, Lord, help me to do something. There's a law that says, if you're not learning to make something happen today, you won't know how much about perfection tomorrow. 
again, there's a law that says if you're not learning to make something happen today, you won't know much about perfecting tomorrow. As a young salesman, I was learning this every step of the way. As a husband, father, Sunday school teacher, you name it, my heart delighted in doing something because while it might have been better had I waited a, lo a little longer, many of those somethings might not have been done at all. If you major in perfection, you'll produce little more than dreams. But production will teach you a little about perfection in daily living. Awesome, awesome reading. We got a couple of quotes here from Charles F. Kittering. He says, you will never stub your toe standing still. The faster you go, the more chances there is a stubbing of stubbing your toe. But the more chances you have of getting somewhere. Charles F. Kittering. And Charles Baldelier. Baldelier. He that leaveth nothing to chance will do few things ill, but he will do very few things. Huh. I like the first quote first. All right, that was pretty good. Now we're going to move to Fort Law of Leadership. We are red hot and rolling. Give to eat. No, give to get. Give to get. I really believe that law, someone says, my granddad taught me that, and my wife, she says that too. And just last week, the pastor preached on it. He said, if you give, you'll get. Don't you believe it? It's not true. You heard of the guy who says, well, my secret of success is I gave. Yes, I gave and gave and gave and gave. And look at all that I got, says his manner. People who give to get would be better off if they didn't get anything. I know people who have been ruined by what they got because they didn't get what they thought they would were going to get. It got them. And there's a difference. There is only one. There is not only a play on words. This is not only a play of words. Excuse me. There is a healthy giving to get. But it is far different from what we usually mean. Leadership is learning to give whether you get anything or not. If you ever give something to get something, you're not giving in the true sense of the word. You're trading. Actually, we don't know much about giving. Do you realize that one of the great problems in marriage is that we know so little about giving? We know all about trading, but not giving. If a person is learning to give, whether he gets anything or not, he is really giving. And if you'll give, whether you get anything or not, you'll always get a greater capacity to give. This increasing capacity forms a ready reservoir for a marketable commodity, which will always enable you to produce and give. To live confidently and securely in a world that's running scared to death, no matter what the bank account says. You may lose your reputation in your home and even your family, but you can't lose your capacity to give. If you're learning to give, but you're not really giving it to give, to get something other than a greater capacity to give. Yeah, let me say that again. You may lose your reputation in your home and even your family, but you can't lose your capacity to give. If you're learning to give, but you're not really giving, if you give to get something other than the greater capacity to give. Wow. Okay. 
Once a fellow said to me, you know why I can't work six days a week, 20 hours a day? Why, I asked, because this isn't my business. If this were my own business, boy, I could put out, but I have no proprietary interest here. If it were something I could leave to my kids, I'll work night and day. I, uh, wait a minute. I worked 16 years for a company where I drew a paycheck. In those 16 years, I didn't work one time for the company. Whom was I working for? I was working for Charles E. Jones and his six little bread snappers. And there were a lot of times when I knew I was giving and I wasn't getting anything except heartaches and misery and problems on problems, but I was aware I was learning to give in the true sense. The young contractor who married a contractor's daughter had to learn the hard way. The father-in-law wanted to give a boost to his new son-in-law. Son, he said, I don't want you to start at the bottom where I did, so I want you to go out and build the most tremendous house this town has ever seen. Put the best of everything in it. Make it a palace and turn it over to me. Well, this was an opportunity to make a killing. He hurried out to slap together a building that would survive two fairly stiff gales. In short order, he was back to dear old dad. Well, dad is finished. It is tremendous. It is a palace like I asked. Yes, sirree, dad. Is it really the finest house ever built, son? Yes, sirree, dad. All right, where's the bill? Is there a good profit on it for you? Yes, sirree, dad. Very good. Here's your check, and where's the deed? As he looked at the deed, the father said, I didn't tell you why I wanted the house to be the best house ever built. I wanted it to do something special for you and my daughter to show you how much I love you. Here, take the deed, go live in the house. You built it for yourself. The young gold bricker crept out of a shattered, frustrated man. He thought he was making a fortune at his father's expense by saving money on inferior materials and shortcuts, but he cheated only on himself. Contractor or not, you're building a life. A better life rises from an increasing capacity to give. Real giving makes real living. Creating a capacity to give something that no one else can. I want to assure you that the person hasn't lived who practice this law to its full potential. There's not a man, including myself, who knows very much about giving. But by the grace of God, anyone can be doing a better job of learning the law of give to get. And remember, what you get is not a return gift, but a greater capacity to go beyond where you are. That's a law for growing. The fifth law of leadership, exposure to experience. In the beginning of life, God gives every person a psychology key ring, and he gives a law that says, every time you expose yourself to another situation, I'll give you another key of experience to your key ring. Soon the key ring begins to be filled with experiences, and then we begin to know how to pick the right key to unlock the situation we face. 
The person who's not learning the law of exposure to experience is fumbling around trying to find a key that he doesn't have, or he has it somewhere and wastes time trying to find it because he hasn't been using it. Then when he gets to the key, somebody else has come along and taken home the bacon. Sometimes the fellow who gets lots of bacon decides to relax and enjoy it. He gets to be 40 or 45, and his income has spiraled up steadily. It's about time I started tapering off, he tells himself. The income keeps rising in the living success story. It's about time I started enjoying my reward. Trouble. What makes a person really produce is knowing that he owes a lot and deserves little. But when a person reaches that place where he thinks I owe little and I deserve a lot, he's heading downhill. One of the biggest lies ever palm off on man is success is a reward to be enjoyed. I don't know one person who is using his success as a reward and is genuinely happy. We're told, to whom much is given of him shall much be required. To whom much is given of him shall much be required. Success is not a reward to be enjoyed, but a trust to be administered. Success is a trust to be administered. I know people around the country who could go fishing for the rest of their lives, but they prefer to be dynamically active and they're having the time of their lives. This is an exciting law because it practices it practices make things get better and better with added years. As you accumulate experiences, you use those keys over and over again. Eventually, you know which key unlocks the door and you slip through while the inexperienced people f- search feverishly to see if they have a key. The old-timer who is learning the law of exposure to experience doesn't need the stamina that he once needed. He knows how to get the heart of a problem and prescribe a remedy. The most dynamic, tremendous people who have made an impact on my life have been over 60 years old. Some are over 70. And last year, the man whose life excited me the most was over 80. Most people who are getting old waste time wishing they were young again. I don't wish I were young again. I had plenty of fun. But the young are miserable with unanswered questions. At least I was. Look at some of these dynamic old geezers. This sort of exuberance could ruin the senior citizen program. I'm convinced that practicing this law can make every year of your life more tremendous than the last. It's a shame that people get older rather than grow old. A person who gets old is not practicing the law of exposure to experience. Getting old means you're drifting, not growing. And that means getting shallow and cynical. And thankless. But if you grow old, you're getting deeper and richer and fuller. It's exciting to grow old as you practice the law of exposure to experience. 
Now there's no way to learn this law of experience other than through exposure. I didn't get much business in my early days, but I sure got a lot of exposure. And that exposure gave me a lot of experience that eventually got me a lot of business. It's a law that absolutely has no shortcuts. You have to take the main route through all the traffic, but it gets you where you want to go. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful reading. Beautiful, beautiful reading. That's, that goes in the 95% failure category. Once we get that 5% of keys, you can certainly open up a lot of keys very easily, very effectively, and move on. Okay, ready for the sixth law of leadership? It's called flexible planning. Flexible planning. This is the age of the planner, the organizer. You go to a seminar and hear some dynamic lecture says, show me a man who plans and I'll show you a success. I say to myself, of course, show me a man who will say that and I'll show you an idiot. Don't ever think that planning will do it. I used to plan plans to end all plans and I almost planned myself out of business a half dozen times. Planning can't be the answer. You heard the sad sack who moans, I'm no quitter. I tried six plans, but I'm not quitting yet. I'm making one more plan, and this plan doesn't work. If this plan hasn't worked, I had it. I got news for him. He's al He had it already. Now, I believe in planning, but the key is not planning. It's flexible planning. Have a plan, a flexible one. Do you know what flexible planning means? It means whatever can go wrong will go wrong. That's right. And since we know that whatever can go wrong may go wrong at the wrong time, flexible planning says plan on your plan going wrong so that you're ready with an alternative plan because that's my plan. Do you know that a lot of people are miserable because they expect everything to go right? They're asking for misery. I expect things to go wrong, so uh, and so I am jubilant all the time. A smart guy asked me, what if something goes right? Easy. I can work in it, it in. I can work it in. I haven't had much trouble with that yet. Try this tomorrow morning when you start out. Say, Lord, send me some miserable problems today. I done it, and no sooner did I get started that I said, you sure answered that prayer in a hurry. You may say you don't have to pray such a prayer. The miserable problems come anyway, but you aren't prepared for them, are you? I remember when I came into the business, I was told about the product and given sales training. I could hardly wait to get out in the field. Finally, the big day came and I asked the manager, whom do I sell? He said, the world is your market. The whole world? Wow. But I was disorganized. I was like that Texan who rushed into the airport and demanded, Give me a ticket. Where to? asked the agent, fumbling with the tickets. It doesn't matter. I got business all over, trumpeted the Texan. Talk about confusion. I was the master of it. I used to jump in my car before I completely fell apart and race to the manager's office. I rush in and say, I got a problem. 
and you'll say, let me tell you what it is. Your problem is planning. And I thought, oh, is he smart? I didn't even tell him the problem, and he gave me the answer. That was pretty good until the 20th time. Then I realized it was a canned sales talk. You know the trouble with canned sales talk. The customer don't know their parts. <laughs> we need to be learning flexible planning. The mark of a man who is growing in his understanding that things go wrong to make us more right. God never breaks a man down with problems except to build him up. The wild stallion may look beautiful on the mesa with his mane blowing in the wind, but he isn't much use until somebody breaks him so he can pull a load of, or carry a rider. Neither is a person much good until he is harnessed to teamwork and disciplined to guidance. God trains a man so the man can run free. That's an old law. You can fight it, but you'll never change it. Imagine how superficial our lives could be if God didn't send circumstances that seemed disastrous for the moment, but later proved enriching and meaningful. One of my employees told me, I'm going to have to quit. I asked him, why? Well, I don't think this is God's will for me. Things are awful. They're awful. I said, that means you're right when you, where you ought to be. This can make you a success. I never forget the big case I sold after I've been in the business three years. Woohoo! Was I licking my chop? We built a big, beautiful home on the profits, but some something sometimes things get confused in pension cases, and this one was the confusion of all confusions. Finally, I had to give all my earnings back, and I was stuck with a fancy home. That's always been the way with me. So I've been learning that while I can't determine in life when I'm going to be kicked, I can determine which way I'm going to go when I get kicked. <laughs> I guess there's no way to grow up without some going down. No humility without humiliations. A person becomes terribly frustrated and bitter if he ignores the law of flexible planning. I heard about a boy who went to work in a grocery store after graduating from high school. And a couple of weeks later, his dad said, son, let's not talk about college. Oh, dad, I didn't tell you. I'm not going to college. You're not going to college? Why? I'm not going to college because I found my life's work. What do you mean you found your life's work? You know, he said, I'm driving the truck there, and I love driving the truck delivering groceries. The boss is happy. I just got a raise. I'm really wonderful. It's really wonderful work. Well, son, you can do something besides drive a truck and deliver groceries all your life. But the boy said, wait a minute. Didn't you tell me life is to be happy? Yes. Well, I'm happy, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to college. Well, the dad was the victim of his own myopia. Life isn't to be happy. It is to be growing. The dad realized he had to take another approach. There was no use telling a 16-year-old the answer because he knew all the answers. So dad went down to the grocery store and said, John, 
You're going to have to fire my son. What do you mean, fire your son? I never known a boy I like like this. He's the most wonderful boy I ever seen. I just gave him a raise. Shines the truck, keeps people happy. Boy, it's great. Well, he's not going to college, said the father. And if you don't fire him, you're going to ruin his life. The grocer realized he had to do something. On Friday, the kid came in to get his pay. And the grocer said, just a minute. And the kid says, yes. He said, you're fired. What did I do? You're fired. What's wrong? You're fired. What? You're fired. The kid got the idea he was fired. He went home all dejected. He said, all right, Dad, I'll go to school. This is a true story some 30 years later, after the boy had gone on to become president of one of the leading universities, he said to his dad, I want to thank you for the time you got me fired. Now it's a hard lesson to be learning, but the law of flexible planning to capitalize on your heartbreaks and miseries or you'll miss the best in life. Make the things that go wrong a part of your plan. And you will be the far, you will be far ahead of where you were when you were waiting for something to happen your way. This doesn't mean you shouldn't plan. Charles Schwab, the president of Bethlehem Steel, granted an interview to Ivy Lee, an extraordinary management consultant. Lee told Schwab that his consulting firm could uncover opportunities for improvement of the company's operations. Schwab said he already knew of more things that should be done than he and his staff could get to. What was needed was no more knowing, but more going. If you can show us a way to get more things done, Schwab said, I'll be glad to listen to you. And if it will work, I'll pay you whatever you ask with reason. Lee answered, if that is what you want, I will show you a method that will increase your personal management efficiency and that of anyone else who applies it by at least 50%. He handed Schwab a black piece of paper and said, write down the most important thing you have to do tomorrow, Schwab said as requested. It took about five minutes. Lee then said, Now, number them in the order of their true importance. This took a little longer because Schwab wanted to be sure of what he was doing. Finally, Lee instructed, the, the first thing tomorrow morning, start working on item number one and stay with it until it's completed. Then take step number two the same way. Stay with it till it's completed. And then number three and so on. Don't worry. Don't worry if you don't complete everything on the schedule. At least you will have completed the most important project before getting to the less important ones. If you can't finish all that you plan for tomorrow with the system, there's no other way you would have finished. And without this and without this system, you probably could have taken much longer to complete what you set out to do without taking care of the things in order of their real value to you and your company. Do this every, do this every working day, Lee went on. 
after you have convinced yourself of the value of this version, have your man try it. Try it at least. Try it as long as you like. And okay. Uh, sorry, dozed off a little bit. Do this every day, working day, Lee went on. After you have convinced yourself of the value of this system, have your men try it. Try it as long as you like, and then send me a, your check for whatever you think the idea is worth. In a few weeks, Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000. That's a very important uh, lesson to learn. Okay, let's go over it again. The instructions is the first thing in the morning, work on number one. Don't move to two, stay at number one till it's done. Then do number two the same way, three and so on. Don't worry if you don't complete everything on the schedule. At least you will have completed the most important project before going to the less important ones. If you can't finish all that you plan for tomorrow with this system, there's no other way you will have finished. And without this system, you probably would have taking much longer to complete what you set out to do without taking care of things in order of their real value to you and your company. Schwab reportedly stated that this lesson was the most profitable one he learned in his business career. It was later said that this was the plan largely responsible for, for turning a little steel company in one of the largest steel producers in the world. It also helped make Charles Schwab a multimillionaire. That's an incredible simple way to plan your day to get the most out of the to get the most out of I lost my place. That's an incredible simple way to plan your day to get the most out of the the available time. Though it is not a strategy for accomplishing a goal you need flexible planning for that. Flexible planning says to have a plan that enables you to roll with the punches, to adapt and adjust. Be learning to capitalize on things that go wrong, making them stepping stones of progress. That's what the wrong things write and exchange that everyone should appreciate. Amen. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. The next reading will be law number seven of leadership. Okay, let's go. Let me read this again because I was dozing off. It says, flexible planning says to have a plan that enables you to roll with the punches, to adapt and adjust, be learning to capitalize on things that go wrong, making them stepping stones of progress. That makes the wrong things right an exchange that anyone sh should appreciate. Wow, makes the wrong things right, and we appreciate. All right, have a nice time. I'll be back. We'll get some rest. Creating tasks. One of the tasks to do waiting on God is 5-10 minute waiting period after each task. 
So we get a Benjamin Franklin method is we take a line, put a line down the middle of the paperwork, okay, of a clean sheet. Let's say, for instance, uh, a legal pad, yellow pad. We put down on the right side of the, of the line, we put tasks, things to consider, to do, options. You know, write all these things down that are optional. One of the options may be a relaxing. Another one may be washing the car. Another one may be doing the laundry. Um, God may want you to go and read your Bible for an hour because there's emergencies coming next week. So, um, so we want to know what God the Father wants us to do. And then you write another column. You say, things I don't want to do. Clean the bathroom, go talk to somebody, make an amends, pay a bill, write down things I don't want to do. On the left column of the paperwork, write down... Uh, uh, any completed task, writing uh, writing things down on a sheet of paper, that's a completed task, and then say, okay, God, now, how, what, where, and when is my next task? And you put a question mark and write those words down, how, what, where, and then, and you wait upon God. It's kind of noisy in here. I figured it would be as soon as I start talking. You go outside into the uh, nature up here in Northern California, a city by Antioch and Pittsburgh. Beautiful, beautiful weather we're having here. Okay, so on the left side, we write down, we take a breather. We write down on the, on the left side on the heading, how, what, where, when, why, these words, kind of like a prayer. It says, okay, God, I admit it, I'm a mess up. I got into the situations because of my laziness, whatever, uh, and I take responsibility for it. I admit it. And then this is the key. You write down, now, what am I going to do about it? And then you write down how, why, where, when, who. And you wait upon God. And then you look at all your tasks and things you need to do and pick one and move it over. Once Move it over to your left side. And once you accomplish it, you... Check it off, write it across as done, and then start over again with your prayer. You say, now take a five, ten minute breather, relax, and say, okay, God, I got that accomplished. Take a deep breath and say, okay, what's, what's my next task? How, why, where, what, when? Of all the tasks you have on the right side, bring another one over. But you have to wait upon God. To make sure that he has a chance to guide you in all these choices. Once you, you get a hunch that God is asking you to, let's say, wash the car and wax it because it's going to make your self-esteem feel good. Then put some music out there and relax and have some fun. And uh, you'd be surprised how that one energy will translate into the hard ones, you know. It would be easier for us to go down the street and pay a bill or make a, an amends or, or give somebody uh, a promise that we did, like a cake or two or something. Amen. So we, we, we don't get in indecision, but we get in indecision with this method. And I just thought about it. I figured it's worth a try. I'm going to, I'm having, a, I already accomplished a couple of things. I'm going to go write down my column, things I don't want to do, things I need to do, things I like to do, 
and just give a big option on that, okay? And on the left side, I'm going to write down my prayer. Okay, God, I am a human being of sorts, and I did mess up in the past. It's because of my lack of maintenance, I'm in this position. I accept it. I messed up. Now, that's a key word, admitting it, accepting it, declaring it. Now, what am I going to do about it? Because God promises to help us, you know. And then, uh, what, and then you write down what, where, or uh, what should I do next? What, where, why, when, who, all these H uh, comments, and then wait and start bringing this stuff over. I hope this is clear. I hope it helps. It's going to help me, and I hope to report at the end of the day. Oh, and don't forget to put in relaxation, R&R. Remember, your 5, 10, 15 minutes of relaxing and waiting before God. Write that down as a task, too. Okay? I'm doing that now. Thank you. Let's pray. My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me the strength as I go off from here to do your bidding. Amen. Keep trying. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. That's what we do. Amen.